Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Radiating my penis. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the conclusion of our 2017 trans film series with the 2015 Tom Hooper film, The Danish Girl. You know what a great movie was, Andy? What's that? Hooper. (laughs) Burt Reynolds. I never saw it. I think of Mr. Hooper from Sesame Street. No, you'd be wrong. Hello there, Ernie. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever gone looking for Einar, but Lily wouldn't let you see him, then you might try to kill some time with The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that, since Games Master Stephen Smart is having his own portrait painted... Let me fill you in on who won this week. The movie was The Woman in Red from 1984, directed by and starring Gene Wilder with Kelly LeBrock and Charles Grodin. The winner was Jay Wylander, who figured it out on Image 2. Congratulations. Hey, we got a blot spot friend of the show. Ben Lott wrote in with his rebound on Transamerica. Sure, Felicity Huffman was excellent in Transamerica, but I did not enjoy the performance of Kevin Zegers or any of the Phoenix family. Also, I just can't stand heavy family dramas like this. It's a genre of film that I totally failed to connect with. After a while, it was like nails on a chalkboard, and when they visited Bree's family, it only got worse. This is a well-made film that is totally not for me. Your rank 175, my rank 244. Ouch. Yep, yep. yep. That's smart. I guess what are you going to do? Sometimes movies don't connect. Yeah. I don't like the Phoenix family either. Right. I guess he didn't find any of the comedy in there since he just felt it was a heavy family (laughs) drama. (laughs) Oh, well. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. My film, Pete, uh, is Lowriders from 20... uh, Well, it was was released at the LA Film Festival in 2016. It's coming out later this year. Uh, This is a story about a young street artist in East LA who's caught between his father's obsession with the lowrider car culture, his ex-felon brother, and his need for self-expression. It doesn't sound like something I would normally be drawn to, but it looks interesting. It's a glimpse into worlds that I just have no sense of. You know, the the graffiti uh, culture, the the lowrider car culture. I just don't, you know, it's nothing I've ever clicked with. 
But I actually really enjoyed watching this trailer. I enjoyed these characters. I thought there was some interesting stuff going on with them. And then the, then I saw Demian Bashir popping up in the trailer as the father. And that got re- me really excited because, I mean, ever since I saw him in A Better Life, I'm just really, I just think that he's just one of the greats. I mean, he's just really is a powerful actor. And then he pops up in, you know, Tarantino's stuff. I mean, he's an actor who carries a lot of weight and is a very interesting figure to watch. And so... This film, uh, directed by Ricardo de Montreuil, uh, or Montreuil, I'm not quite sure how you say his name, uh, but he's a he's a Peruvian director and uh, who hasn't done a whole lot other than a few uh, Peruvian films. But uh, this looks like his uh, his big Hollywood breakout film, and so you know I'm curious about it. I it's one of those films that I I guess I you know I'm going to look at it kind of like Hustle and Flow, where it's going to introduce me to a world that I know nothing about. But hopefully one I can walk away with uh, having some respect for and find that the characters uh, are really compelling. That's what I'm kind of getting out of this trailer. Uh, plus Eva Longoria is in it. So uh, what do you think of it? You know, I, I, I'm right with you. I'm, I'm totally curious about it just because of the, of the world that it inhabits. But, um, Damien Bashir, absolutely. Also, Theo Rossi, uh, who is, I just adore this guy's work. Um, he was in, he was, uh, Juan Carlos Ortiz in Sons of Anarchy. I didn't watch a lot of Sons of Anarchy, but, uh, he was great. And Luke Cage, uh, he was, uh, uh Shades. Shades. Yeah. Uh, Alvarez in, in Luke Cage and I thought he was great especially in the bottom half of that season I really liked him uh, his his role I, it was a little awkward the first couple of episodes he was a little awkward of a character for me but uh, I, I really thought he he uh, did a great job at it. and Melissa Benoist is in this film which uh, felt wildly out of character having you know been watching her in Supergirl of late so uh, it, it's got a, a lot of things going for it it looks like a really interesting story and um so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm super in. Yeah. Plus Tony Revolori is in it. Who's popping up in the new Spider-Man soon. And he was just in dope uh, a couple years ago. So, mm. you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, and, and of course, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, you know, so it's mm. got a lot of things going for it. And as, as much as I, when I first heard about this, I kind of rolled my eyes, but then I watched the trailer and I was thinking, you know, this actually looks like something I'm going to enjoy quite a bit. So, so there you go. Low Rider. It's coming out uh, May 12th. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right. My trailer, Andy. Uh, kind of snuck up on me. Uh, it, it's a. Uh, it's called the film is called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Uh, it stars uh, Melanie Linsky, Elijah Wood, David Yao. It is written and directed by Macon Blair, and it is. Uh, it, it's a very strange uh, universe, filmed. Dare I say this out loud? In Portland. So that should tell you something. Uh, when a depressed woman is burglarized, she finds a new sense of purpose by tracking down the thieves alongside her obnoxious neighbor, and they soon find themselves dangerously out of their depth against a pack of degenerate criminals. Uh, her entire mission is to make sure that the world I- stops being such an asshole. Uh, and I think that is a fantastic premise for a movie. Uh, it has a tone that reminds me uh, uh, strangely of, of um, Zombieland, in, in a way. Uh, Macon Blair is uh, home to uh, films like Blue Ruin. He wrote Small Crimes, which I think we've talked about. But he was also in Green Room and Murder Party and Gold with... Uh, McConaughey. Yeah, McConaughey. Uh, yeah, so he's in Gold coming up. And so it, it's uh, it, it's got he's got kind of an interesting uh, pedigree. Melanie Linsky is so charming. Uh, she, is, she made her debut in Heavenly Creatures back in 1994. She's been around for... Um, uh, uh, she's been around for a long uh, time and uh, always she's she's that girl right she's got that face uh, and is um, an excellent sort of friend uh, but I, I find her really charming in this in this lead role here too so I'm very excited to see her in this does it looks weird it looks it looks like a weird uh, fun film what do you think yeah you know it, it does have that sort of indie vibe with some quirky characters and and uh, you know a strange little mission to retrieve these stolen spoons <laughs> it's like it sounds yeah. totally indie <laughs> Uh, but I, I like the vibe. I like the uh, the really strange characters that uh, Melanie and Elijah both play. And just, I mean, just everybody has an interesting sense in this trailer. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Macon Blair, I really enjoyed yeah, him in, in um, Blue Ruin. 
Uh, his part wasn't as big in, in Green Room. But I'm curious to see what he does as kind of the the person behind the helm uh, here, you know, steering the ship, writing and directing this and and really kind mm-hmm. of making this his own. And uh, yeah, I, I think it looks really interesting. Um, I love Melanie Linsky and, uh, you know, it's great to see kind of her in a little uh, project that she's uh, she's taken on herself. Uh, this film opened at Sundance just a few days ago, as we record this, uh, 10 days ago, the 19th or so, uh, and uh, to great reviews. Uh, it is so far been uh, well-liked. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 100% fresh. Of wow. course, I think when last time I checked, there were only like seven reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> but all seven people liked it. And usually on the internet, it's hard to find seven people who agree on anything. So uh, it, it opens, actually Netflix picked it up, so it opens on 20, the, uh, February 24th on internet. So uh, wherever you have internet, you should be able to check this out on Netflix. I think it's going to be worth watching. There you go. Fantastic. Radiation is a miracle, Andy. It destroys the bad and saves the good. The first time we met, she propositioned me. She seemed so sure. I was sure. It was so shy and mysterious. Is there something you'd like to tell me? Is there something you'd like to know? I'm your wife. I know everything. Could you help me with something? You will not tell anyone about this. (laughs) He's lost his way. He needs a friend. Let me help. I think Lily's thoughts. I dream her dreams. She was always there. I need my husband. I need to hold my husband. Are you all right? The fact is, I believe that I'm a woman. And I believe it too. The Danish Girl, Andy, director Tom Hooper. Writers David Ebershoff wrote the book, screenplay adaptation by Lucinda Coxon. Stars Eddie Redmayne, Alicia Vikander, Matthias Schonartz. What do you think? Schonartz? Schonartz? Ben Wishaw, uh, Amber Heard, Sebastian Koch. It is a, a fictitious story of a true person, the uh, reportedly one of the first um, uh, one of the first people to undergo a male-to-female gender reassignment operation, and uh, it happened in the nineteen late 1920s, early 1930s. The book, The Danish Girl, as I understand it, Andrew, is pretty much largely fiction. And now we have a movie based on a fictional right. story, which is retelling a true story. What is up with that? It's, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this when we talk about movies that are... Um, you know, supposedly based on a true story. Here we have a true story that was fictionalized for the purpose of this book by David Ebershoff that was, um, you know, he said he wasn't even trying to tell the true story. He was just kind of imagining. That is exactly the trick. That's the twist. We've never had that where somebody is openly saying, yeah, there's this is, you know, I mostly made this up. He's totally open of it. It's not like they're trying to hide anything. They're not changing anything for dramatic purpose for the film, for the adaptation. He just made it up for the book. Well, but the thing is, I think it's easier to get away with that with a novel. You know, I mean, I, I think he can yes. just kind of, he can he can say, oh, yeah, it's just taking this. Because he, he said he was imagining what the inner life of, of Lily Elba was like and fabricating everybody else. And just kind of, you know, making making up this this story because he wanted to tell this this story about the turmoil, the inner turmoil that this character was going through. Now, when Tom Hooper finally came around to directing it, I think that he wanted to try to tell some of the truth uh, a little more than the book did. And actually, it sounded like they tried to pull some from that book that uh, that Lily had written. Um, what was it called again? Man into Woman. You know, I, I think that they ended up kind of advertising it as based on a true story, but there was so much of it that wasn't true. It's it's almost like I feel like the filmmakers might have been better off just just keeping it in line with what Ebershoff was doing with the novel as opposed to trying to make it a true story, but really just not. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, and and in that regard, I mean, here you 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 start watching the film, and it it uh, like I, I, you make whatever connection you make with it, and then you start learning about it and realizing that it wasn't uh, that it was it's actually fiction based on fiction, and you wonder how much justice is is doing to the to uh, you know raising awareness of of the um, the the uh, cause of the transgender um, community. Uh, and I under so it, it makes me at least feel like I'm in better touch with the um, with with some of the criticism of the film and how it was made. Now, uh, was it a was it a good film? Like, how did it hold up to you uh, for you? Uh, you know, separate from the issue of the adaptation. Well, and this was my first viewing of it, and you know, I I didn't uh, I, I thought it was fine. I mean, I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. It was for me. It just felt. It's it's in a weird place because it felt like um, what I get from some uh, films that are based on true stories, like biopics, where I'm like, okay, that was an interesting view into their life. I'm glad I know that about that person now, um, even if I didn't really love the film and probably won't return to it. But then when you read about it and you learn about it, it's like, well, okay, but then I'm not really learning about much of the truth of the people. <laughs> Uh, so where does that leave me? And so, I mean, I enjoyed it at the time, but after the fact, it's like, well, I, I kind of wish that I learned a little bit more about the actual people. So it's it's a yeah. weird place to be in in the end of this film, you know? I do. I am I am still wildly conflicted about this movie. And the second time uh, watching it, I uh, it I didn't get any better because there are some elements that I do love that I really adore, and and specific elements and uh, uh, um, that that keep me connected to this film. And overall, it is the the film is less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, which I find so disappointing. Right, I find it. Actively frustrating because uh, I because there are some things I hold in such high esteem, and yet, uh, boy, do I find that it drags in places for long stretches. I want to be just through, uh, and and so that was that was challenging for me. Um, so we we mentioned a little bit about the um, uh, the fact that this was the adaptation by uh, Lucinda Cox. And what did you think of the of the way the the script was architected? Knowing that we've, I, I'm assuming that neither of us have written or have read uh, any of the. Um, uh, source material um she's yeah. she's also written uh, wild target and the heart of me uh, n- uh neither of those are films that i have seen uh, heart of me was 2002 wild target 2010 you know it's it's uh i mean i think it's fine again it you know separating from the true story um i think the story is an interesting one it certainly is a nice glimpse into kind of an inner turmoil that a, this particular person, uh, Einer, is going through as he is realizing that he really, as he kind of discovers through this happenstance where he has to pose for his wife's um, uh, paintings in women's clothing, that that really he connects with it. And all of a sudden it kind of creates this this shift in him and he wants to, he realizes that he's kind of a woman inside Um it was a very interesting transformation, and I actually really enjoyed those elements about, uh, you know, his um, just kind of exploration and learning and trying to figure out exactly what was going on. Um, but it was interesting because I did read some people who kind of complained about the script and how uh, this was Kyle Buchanan writing in Vulture, complaining that this was part of a trend of queer and trans films that are actually about straight people, which I thought was kind of a funny uh, <laughs> way to look at this. And I'm like, well, it does really, totally. we are seeing this whole story through uh, Gerda's eyes. This is his his wife, played by Alicia Vikander. And then I learned that there, you know, in the actual history, it sounds like she possibly was a lesbian and might have actually been drawn to um, to Lily uh, when he kind of made that transformation and just like all this stuff that's like they clearly didn't explore at all. So it's strange. It makes for a really strange uh, script. And again, I'm kind of getting off tangent again, but I, I, I enjoy, I, I think I enjoy kind of some of the elements that Lucinda put into this story, trying to kind of create this story and craft this this journey that Einer is, is taking as uh, he transforms into a she and becomes Lily. Um, but that being said, I, I do wonder if there were better ways to approach it. Now, I, I wonder, I, I, you say that you felt like they didn't really explore, uh, the, the potential angle that, uh, Gerda was a, a lesbian and 
sort of fancied the feminization of, of Lily. I, I'm not sure I agree with that, especially in the beginning. I think so much of what I like about both of the portrayals of these characters by uh, Vikander and, and Redmayne is that they're both struggling with their own identity, right? I mean, they're, they're struggling with who they are. And I think that's one of the things that this film really uh, does well in a way that the other two films that we've watched in this series have already sort of moved beyond, right? I mean, they're, the, the um, protagonists in those films are already sort of settled in their direction. There's, there's no... Right. Right, yeah. There's no going back. There's no and and this film is at a different point in uh, our protagonists, uh, you know, struggle with identity, with gender identification, and and discovering that he is a she uh, at a place that we haven't seen before. And I, you know, from the outside, I appreciated seeing that struggle and seeing the way Eddie Redmayne portrayed it. I think he did an exceptional job there. Uh, if that was the goal, I I really like that and and. To Alicia Vikander's credit, uh, I I found her as a such a wildly enthusiastic enabler that it was pretty clear to me early on, especially on second viewing, that she was also dealing with some some uh, you know maybe settled identity issues. I don't think they ever they never really said anything overt, but at least in the beginning, it was so easy for her to get her to to get around um, the fact that this was this was going on in in her husband. That um, uh, you know it it felt more like uh, more than just sort of kinky bedroom play for her, like her reaction to it, her enthusiasm about it, uh, and and her uh, adopting it. Um, it felt too natural. Like it really felt like they were, they were sort of saying something there. Well, and I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I do see all of that and I, I did feel like they, they had some of that exploration. And I guess my sense was that it wasn't so much that, um, that they were saying, Hey, she might have some, some, you know, lesbian leanings here, but it was actually like, um, she was just so in love with, with Einer that it's like, it almost was at this this interesting place where she wasn't really sure how she felt anymore, um, whether he was showing up as Einar or as Lily, and and it was an interesting exploration for her. I didn't see it as, you know, like we never see her outside of that relationship finding interest in women, and I guess that's kind of the the that side of it that they didn't explore. And I guess like some of her artwork is is uh, has that uh, that tone to it and everything and so so i don't know i mean I, they didn't necessarily need to lean in those directions to to kind of give the film a totally different overall tone i think the film uh tells a story about these characters like you said these are really interesting characters i find both both einer slash lily and gerda very interesting and their relationship is um, a really touching relationship, and it's it's nice getting to explore it on screen with them. Um, I guess my sense is that I just wonder if um, Lucinda, in the in all the iterations of the script that she wrote over the you know fifteen years it came to actually get this thing made, if it might have uh, been a stronger film if they had just stuck with more of the truth, but it's you know it's so hard to say that i think is a no and i think that is a that is the better question you know would it have have enabled them to tell the story in a way that actually met more um more needs kind of cinematically right and uh, you know i or connect with more people kind of emotionally i i think that's there's definitely a case to be made there tom hooper as a director uh it seems like this thing jumped through a lot of hands before it landed in his yeah actually at the very beginning i believe when when uh, lucinda started writing this script in 2000 i think it was neil labute who actually first optioned the book uh and had her start working on it and it took a couple years to get it into place and everything and then i think that that it went back and forth quite a bit trying to find the right people to to uh to helm it i think uh i think after neil labute left um, I think Nicole Kidman was attached for a while to actually play Einer. She was going to produce, and they couldn't find somebody to play Gerda. Uh, I think Thomas Alfredson came on, right, I think it was right before uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but that didn't happen. And then Lassie Hallstrom was set to direct, and then Anand Tucker was set to direct. 
And finally, Tom Hooper uh, read the script, and he he claimed to have cried three times when he read it. He was so touched by it, and he knew that he had to direct it. And in all this time of all these different people involved, there were like 20-some different iterations of the script. And Tom Hooper ended up going back to one of the very early drafts of the script. And, you know, I mean, he's an interesting director. I mean, he's done Les Mis. He's done uh, some other interesting films. And I, I think that he's got some definite skill with how he tells his stories. Um, here, um, I, you know, if, if anything, I think that there might be some more script issues that just kind of bog the, the film down a bit, uh, pacing-wise, and uh, just kind of keeping things moving. But I do think Tom Hooper has a really good um, handle on how to just kind of put stuff on screen. I love his compositions, especially in this film about these two painters, I felt he really built some beautifully composed shots that were, they felt like paintings or felt like they had been framed um, as if a painting. Um, A lot of that. And some really beautiful shallow depth of field shots. I love those POV shots when Einer first puts the stockings on. You get those beautiful POV shots, really narrow depth of field of of him feeling the leg in the stocking. You can really get a sense of the character. And so I, I just enjoyed the way that he put it together. That is the thing that attracts me the most to this film above any of the performances, which I think are exceptional in, in many places. The uh, the way this film looks, it is a work of art. I credit to Hooper and to Danny Cohen, cinematographer. Uh, it, it is as beautiful a job of just shooting and framing and lighting, compositing everything about the look of this film, I am enamored by. I can't let it go. Uh, you mentioned the very shallow depth of field, but the, the very wide depth of field when they're doing these long shots down the apartment, uh, the corridor of the apartment, where it, it looks like this incredible 2D mat of uh, just everything is in crisp focus down three hallways until somebody walks in, in the room and you realize, oh my God, it's not a still. It's not a postcard. It's an actual moving image. It is, uh, I, I find it just stunning in, in so many ways. And uh, with some wonderfully surprising framings, putting the uh, actors, the focal point in the frame in a very strange place in the frame, but not so aggressive uh, as you might get in some other of the, the um, uh, more uh, sort of avant-garde films that we've talked about or film noir. Like we end up with, with just some r- really tastefully uh, and artistically composited frames that I'm just so touched by, which makes it so hard for me to say I'm never going to come back back to this film um, <laughs> because I just like the look of it so much. I may just turn the volume down and let it play. You know, it's it's a, if nothing else, it's an incredible screensaver. Yeah. Is that a huge insult? No, I, you know, I think, I think that speaks <laughs> to the film though. It's beautifully done. Um, but you know, it could ha- it could use some story boost to kind of uh, give us a little more uh, interest in the actual story going on here. Yeah. Technically it is, it is a masterpiece. I, I, I think it's just, uh, it's just fantastic. Yes. First shot, last shot, Andy. Oh, first shot. So the first shot is, yeah, we have this chilly landscape. It's kind of a, a, a field. There's a little creek running through it, some yellow flowers in the foreground, some bugs flying through, uh, leading into a series of other cold landscape shots, really beautifully composed. Again, I love particularly the uh, that that creepy tree um, uh, that has no leaves from the fall. Uh, in We have the reflection of it in the lake. Um, a lot of beautiful, cold, just landscape shots before we settle on this shot of the cliff um, with some sun shining through some clouds where we get the title screen. And the last shot, uh, we have followed uh, Hans and, and Gerda. Uh, they are uh, standing high on this cliff. In, in, um, it's, they're, they're in the home. They're in Lily's hometown. And this is where many of the, the uh, shots from the first shot uh, were taken, and they're standing on this cliff. They discover that there is they're in this location, and Gerda, uh, Gerda's scarf. This is the same scarf that has been handed back and forth between Lily and Gerda through the course of the film. It is it's blown off of her neck and is swept away in the wind, and it is whipping around. We're intercutting between Gerda's face saying "Let it fly, let it fly," and she starts to cry. And the last shot is the uh, the scarf is is heading out to sea. It is free. It is a free scarf. <laughs> it is free. And, uh, and that is the last shot the as the end bug. credits roll. <laughs> <laughs> she just let it go. Uh, what did you think? How did these things uh, relate? Well, the uh, definitely we get a sense um, 
initially I was kind of questioning these these uh, landscapes, and then I learned right away that oh, this is a painter, and he paints these these kind of old, cold landscapes. And, uh, you know, these, it's almost as if these were inspiration, but I liked how it was like a, a landscape that was kind of frozen in, in its place. And then at the end, we have the same landscape that we've returned to now at the end, but we've got this, this little glimpse of freedom flying through. It's as if, uh, we've seen a transformation of Einar into Lily over the course of the film from the kind of the, the frozen on the inside to now having this little uh, glimmer of life. And so I thought it was nice. I liked that, uh, that connection. I did too. And, and I also liked the way, uh, you know, it was, uh, played by Vikander too. And, and in Gerda's case, she, she actually sort of resolves her transformation too. Right. And she is in love with this other man and, and, uh, they are, they're sort of able to say goodbye in a place that was obviously, important to Lily because they're, I mean, there's, they've, they've now witnessed the five trees and the sort of valley where that, that Lily had been painting throughout the course of, of the first act of the film, which I thought was, was very touching. I thought it was a really nice resolution. Um, and, and I think it really demonstrates what I, the, the appreciation, as you say, of the art and the source of inspiration for the artwork, uh, I think that was handled, um, really well between the first shot and the last shot. They sort of bookend the, the beauty of the landscape that these people are trying to capture, um, in paint. I think it was, it was lovely. It kind of reminded me actually of, uh, Never Let Me Go. Just the, uh, I think the tone, the color tone and everything, you know? Mm, yeah. I yeah. can totally see that. Yeah, yep. uh, casting by Nina Gold. Uh, obviously, got uh, Eddie Redmayne in there. You mentioned that uh, Nicole Kidman was set uh, to star in here. Uh, in, in addition to, geez, Marion Cotillard. That would have been a different thing. My question to you around casting of Eddie Redmayne before we get into what you think of his performances, Lily and and Einar, is do you think it makes a difference to you uh, whether the actor playing the part is a woman or a man now that we have uh, discussed Transamerica? This is always going to be the question. I mean, you're always going to have uh, this coming up. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how this this conversation uh, gets shaped decades from now as potentially more more people or trans transgenders are a bigger part of our community. Who knows how things are going to change? But now, I just, I mean, I know there are transgender actors and actresses out there. I just don't know who they are. Um, and I, I think the question is, yeah, would it have been more appropriate for a woman to play this character like Nicole Kidman and have uh, her kind of playing a man and then trying to make that transformation into a woman, having a man playing a man or having a uh, an actual uh, you know somebody who isn't a cisgender as they call it somebody who's born a man and and is a man um, you know actually playing the part and I I just don't even know anymore honestly it's it's like I I don't know I have given up I, it's yeah I it's so hard to tell I mean for me it's it, it, it's going to boil down to you know is it okay for a British person to play an American you know is it okay for an American to play an Asian I mean there's in the world of acting actors are always looking for challenges and this is certainly regardless of how you play it it's going to create interesting challenges for these actors um, does it make it right for them to portray them I don't know um in the sense of where we were with Transamerica, where Brie had already gone through some surgeries, so it was a lot closer to being a woman than a man, I think it did make more sense to have Felicity Huffman playing that. In this particular case, we start the film with Einar as a male. It To me, it, I guess it made sense to have Eddie Redmayne playing it. So, I, I mean, I guess that's where I, I let it rest. I, I had trouble because Eddie Redmayne in this film, knowing where the film goes, ultimately, Eddie Redmayne is, is uh, able to affect such an effeminate uh, sort of persona or demeanor anyway. Uh, I, I found it really um, sometimes hard to tell. Uh, you know, I, and, and maybe that's clearly to his credit that he's, he's an amazingly uh, talented character performer. Um, and, uh, but, but I, I, 
I found him uniquely positioned to play this role in particular, to embody the more feminine aspects as he was learning and starting to practice, which I thought was a really touching part of the film, right? He's starting to practice, like, learning to be a woman. We talked last week about the challenges that go into becoming a, a woman, as as demonstrated by the, the um, uh, trans uh, consultants uh, that were helping him uh, in Transamerica, helping Felicity uh, to uh, adapt to the role, um, you could really see it here. And I, it was interesting to see it all played out in this uh, in this uh, period. I, I thought he just did a fantastic job. Uh, did you, I mean, were you connected to Eddie? Did you find he he delivered the goods? Oh, absolutely. I thought he was just spectacular in the, in the performance. Uh, and you're right. I mean, he really made that transformation believable going from Einar to Lily. Um, and, but his, his, those moments where he was kind of realizing, like having these moments, like when he does put that stocking on, like I mentioned earlier, or is wearing the clothes and, and like even that discovery when, when she uh, starts taking off his clothes and realizes that he's wearing that slip of hers underneath it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just like, it's almost like he wanted her to discover it, right? He he doesn't he he doesn't back away from it. He's not shy about it. He's just like letting it be there and letting her discover it and seeing what she does about it. Um, but he's he's just kind of brazen enough to move forward with it. I found him so compelling. And then when he he kind of uh, finds this relationship with Henrik as as he kind of is is flirting with that and the idea of being a woman in Henrik's eyes only to be kind of dashed when Henrik reveals that he's actually gay and he actually, it's almost like this little game that he's playing with Einar. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I just really enjoyed all those elements that Eddie was bringing to the to the script here. And I, I, I felt it was very compelling all, all of the time. How about uh, Vikander? I, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I as Gerda, uh, she stro- hit me the wrong way in the first 15 minutes of the film. Why is that? I had a tough time acclimating to her performance. I felt she was uh, she was a little bit, and and I'm speaking, I th- I think mostly to my sense memory of her the first time I saw the film. I thought she was too bull in a china shop. It was too much, too over the top, too. It was just too much. The second time I saw the film, uh, I. Uh, knowing kind of what I was getting, I acclimated to her much more quickly, and I thought her aggressiveness was such a delightful and uh, sort of masculating trait uh, to the effeminence of um, uh, of Redmayne's portrayal. Like, they, they were uh, they were well-paired for the journey that they were about to take together, and I don't think I saw that coming the first time I saw the film. Uh, the second time, it was much easier to kind of grab hold of what she was going for. I, I thought she was great. I really enjoyed her in this film. I mean, she's one of those actresses that, for me, just seems to have really come out of nowhere the last few years. And just yeah. everything she does, she just is really hitting it out of the park. I mean, I just... God, she can do anything. I know. It's <laughs> like from this to the man from UNCLE. I mean, she's just great. Uh, except for Jason Bourne. Um, but, you know, she's she's pretty spectacular in, in this film. And um, I just... I, I really felt her curiosity about this whole thing and I think the scene that really uh, really hit me with her was when she was talking to Lily and just like look I just want to talk to my husband again can you bring him out I just need to talk to Einar again and Lily's just like I can't I just can't and and that was so heartbreaking Uh, it's almost like this game that they had been playing and it's almost like she's kind of hit this point where she's realized it isn't really a game and she's stuck in this and and um, this is how it is now. And it was really, I don't know, it just really kind of struck a chord with me. Uh, you know if uh, Alicia Vikander and Numi Rapace have ever done anything together? I don't think so. That would be a film I would see. <laughs> the way we describe Alicia Vikander, like they just came out of nowhere. That's the exact same feeling I get with Numi Rapace, like just out of nowhere and can do anything. Yeah, well, that is very true. They should be in something together. <laughs> they should be in be something great. together. Somebody... Somebody put them in a movie together. I think it's I interesting like to, to picture Charlize Theron, Gwyneth Paltrow, Uma Thurman, Marianne Cotillard, Rachel Weiss as Gerda. They were all uh, people who at one point in time had either been considered or had signed on. Um, and I don't know. I, I really, it, it's one of those things, you know, you know, you never really can exactly picture somebody else doing it once you've kind of locked somebody else in. But um, um, there you are some interesting You can't picture Marianne Cotillard? There. Oh, I, you I can't can picture, picture Marion Cotillard doing this. Yeah. I could picture her in a heartbeat. Yeah, 
Yeah, Rachel Vice, I can. Yeah, U- Uma too. Thurman, Charlie's Gwyneth. I have a harder time. Uh, how about uh, Matthias Schoenert as Hans Axtjil? He's a, an interesting actor. I mean, his his part's not huge, but I enjoy the role he plays here. I I had seen him in Rust and Bone. Uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit, and The Drop, which um, I, I can't remember him in that, but I know he was in it. Um, you know, I, I, I find him compelling. I think his part of the film was an interesting twist. Um, um, but, you know, there wasn't a lot there, so I guess I, I guess I don't have a lot to say about him. But, I mean, I like him as an actor. Uh, me too. I, I thought he was great. I, I thought he actually uh, was a, a wonderful grounding influence. And it was always, I, I found that that's one of the things that they did well uh, in, in terms of delivering these little turns of unexpected um, uh, heart in the film after uh, Redman gets beaten up or, uh, you know, Einar gets beaten up uh, in in uh, Germany. Um, Paris. You know, who does he choose to, or Paris, I'm sorry. Uh, he goes to Paris, he gets beaten up. Uh, who does he choose to go to? This person that he's essentially been hiding from for the most most of the second act. And it's this is the guy who sits down and and it, it patches him up and, and uh, gives him that sense of just sort of love and caring that he really needs um, and, as he's on this journey. And and um, you know, trying to find help, and and then Hans becomes this this caretaker, um, kind of a, a, a proxy, and and works. Uh, I think he's just totally believable. I mean, he's he is a, a, a wonderful character. Absolutely, it's interesting to think about the trans, uh, the 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 trans tropes that we were started mulling over last time. You uh-huh. know, uh, who, who <laughs> it was a funny one. I was thinking about the 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 hunky straight guy uh, who falls in love with the um, transgender character, right? And I, I thought, man, right out of the gate, we get it in this one with the guy who with uh, what's his name who falls yeah, in ben love Wishaw. with her in the open the Ben uh, Wishaw, yeah, Ben Wishaw right away, and uh, it turns out, oh no, he's actually gay. Well, that's a fun. <laughs> funny little twist right i what a what a great twist on a list of tropes that i hadn't even fully fleshed out yet <laughs> it really was and i actually didn't even think about that because um because it was in he i don't know it was an interesting the way that he was playing it because you couldn't quite tell like what was he had he figured it out or was he yeah. convinced that it was a, a, a girl i know that even uh, you know, Einar has that conversation with Gerda about he thinks he might have known that it was him, but he couldn't tell. It was interesting. Yeah, I, I thought he was great. And, and you know, speaking of Ben Wishaw, uh, what a fantastic, uh, fantastic actor in his own right. Um, we've, we know him, obviously, from the recent round of James Bond movies. He is Q. Uh, he is also in, um, uh, well, he was in The Lobster uh, recently. He's Paddington. He's in, in the, he was Paddington. Oh, no kidding. I had not made that connection. I was trying to figure out, was, wasn't he in uh, uh, Sherlock? I don't know. I haven't seen any of those. The TV show? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> God. Andy? I know. Like around every corner, there's some sort of <laughs> massive pop culture thing. You see the most obscure stuff, and you miss the big ones. I know. It's terrible. I'll watch them in like 10 years. I know you will. That's the pain. The pain. <sighs> anyway, oh, I like Ben Wishaw a lot. He wasn't in, uh, I don't think he was in Sherlock. I think I'm misplacing him. He was in In the Heart of the Sea. He was in Cloud Atlas. Yeah. Yep. Yes, he was. Everybody's favorite. Uh, he so anyway he was great. Uh, who else do we have on the list? Uh, I lost my tabs. After Ben Wishaw, we have Amber Heard. Amber Heard, she's in it, but uh, you know it's one of those little parts that I, I apparently there was more of her in it that was left on the cutting room floor. Uh, she just has a few scenes. I, I mean, she's the friend. She's the nice character that uh, kind of helps helps them define Lily and is in on the secret right from the beginning. I mean, she's fine. I just, I, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, that was Amber Heard. Like, I didn't even realize that it was her until after I was reading the credits. She came in in the sexy dress, and then she was gone. Just <laughs> gone. Uh, and Sebastian Koch as Dr. Kurt Varnacross. An interesting uh, character in the film. He's the the doctor who finally, uh, you know, lets, uh, lets uh, Einer know you are actually a woman and helps him through these transformations. So what's interesting is that he was actually a Nazi, and then at the time that um, 
all of this or shortly after before this all this started happening um the the nazis uh, did a book burning at the institute for sexual science in may 1933 and they destroyed all of the dresden women's clinic and the records in the allied bombing raids of february 45 and all of this kind of destroyed a lot of what was written about the life of lily and um, that was, I thought, a really interesting little glimpse into this, a part of this world that we don't touch at all in this, is that he was actually a Nazi. And, and this is how we really lost a lot of information about Lily, um, because, uh, because the Nazis kind of destroyed a lot. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Wow. It, was, it was interesting that, that her book um, actually did end up making it out. Um, we, that, we mentioned the controversy up front the, um, about the trans actors the trans roles and you you said again it was the same sort of uh point we made last week like we just don't know how deep the bench is of actors of of name and notoriety that could pull off uh, a a part like the these parts uh but there were a lot of trans characters uh extras and and secondary characters in this film yes yeah, according to Tom Hooper, more than 40 trans people were involved in the film, supporting actors, extras, yeah, hoping to inspire more trans people to pursue a career in, in entertainment. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think there was one, Rebecca Root, she played one of Lily's nurses. Jake Graff, um, he's a transgender man, played a small part next to Matthias at the art gallery uh, when Gerd is showing off her portraits. Um, so, I mean, there were... They, they were there. It's just, yeah, they're not the ones carrying the film. I mean, you know, it, inevitably it's going to fall to who's going to bring the money at the box office. Eddie Redmayne had won an Oscar. Yeah, there, there are reasons that people, I guess, cast him. He's an incredibly talented performer. Yes, he is. And, you know, he, I think that's I think that's I think we'd add that to the list of reasons he's cast. Yeah, he's very talented. But, you know, he's also got a, a box office clout. And I mean, he had a, a working relationship with Tom Hooper already. They'd worked together twice mm-hmm. on. Les Mis and on Elizabeth the first. So. Hair and makeup, Jan Sewell was working with Eddie again. Uh, this is a follow-up to their work together in The Theory of Everything. And um, uh, by all rights, that was a stunning turn of makeup in that film. Uh, and, uh, you know, they shot it all over Europe. Yeah, they shot it in Denmark. They it on locations. Yeah, Denmark, Belgium, <laughs> France, Germany, Norway, uh, London. They shot some on the stages up in England. So... Uh, yeah, forty-four days, six countries. That's uh, quite a quite a bit jumping around all over the place. It's almost like a road movie. Hey, look at that! That's right. <laughs> it's a road movie. Oh, we did it. We did the three it. transmos road movie series. <laughs> uh, let's talk about editing. Melanie Ann Oliver uh, did the editing. Some of the storytelling could be. Uh, some of the pacing issues could be editing. Uh, it's hard to say. Where were the pacing issues for you? Right. You you say there's pacing issues. Where did you have a problem with it? Uh, I think it was really just kind of the second act. You know, I, I just felt like there were some elements in there that that could have moved a little faster. I, I can't pinpoint anything, and and that's always a sign that uh, there's just something in the way that the story was structured, and that it's just not moving. Um, as effectively as it could have been, and you know, and and I just feel like something in the second act just kind of bogged things down a little bit for me. Um, I don't know. I mean, you had mentioned the second act was kind of a little bit of a problem for you too. So I, I feel like there must be something there that's just kind of slowing it down. But I, I don't. Did you notice anything in particular? Or? Well, there was the second act in uh, leading up to her departure to uh, actually have her first surgery, and then the stuff between surgeries. This was the problem that I had, and I think is is more uh, editing is more implicated in this in this section in the third act, which. Uh, where the editing, I think, is responsible for making the space between the two surgeries downright unbelievable. What they were trying to sell me was that she was trying to rush the space between surgeries to to act, uh, so that she could just finish the job. The first surgery was to slice everything off, and then the next surgery was going to be to rebuild the new stuff. That was how they were going to do it back in the day, and that was the story they were trying to tell. But uh, I I did not find that I believed the passage of time between those two surgeries as being anything worthy of feeling intensely about. Huh, interesting. What do you, does that I, make sense? I, I think that does. I think that there's something there um, that kind of uh, could be something that leaves it a little uh, flat. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know if this is going to... Um, 
make it, it uh, seem like it could have been stronger. But hearing about some of the, the, the story about Lily and how how she really died was uh, she actually really wanted a kid, apparently. And uh, um, she'd already finished her surgeries and she was trying to get a uterine uteral implant. I'm not sure what they call it, but basically she was getting a surgery to have a uterus added uh, so that, you know, she could hopefully have a baby. And there was, uh, I guess, complications in that. And that's what ended up leading to her death. Wow. That's a really interesting element that never gets explored in this particular film, other than I, I think Lily says a line at some point about, you know, somebody asks about kids or something, and, and she's like, oh, may, maybe, or something like that. It's kind of an offhand yeah, remark. I don't but, know. But yeah. they, they played it in a way where, I don't know, I just feel like there's an element to that that might have uh, strengthened the story for me, given me a little more to to latch onto other than just this, uh, this constant kind of going back and forth between Lily and Gerda as they were uh, finishing up here, you know, and maybe that's what it is, is like, as we were getting toward the end, Gerda kind of felt like she was good with everything and kind of going along, helping Lily with the the process. And it just kind of felt like we kind of lost conflict and that uh, other than the fact that Lily was changing, I think that might be it actually. It became just routine. That yeah. was that's it. I think that's I think that's that's the problem I had with it. They made it a routine relationship. Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. Yep, yep. You know what I liked though? Can I tell you what I liked? What did you like? The music. The music. Ah, uh, yes, Alexandre Desplat. A beautiful score. I really do think that the score was a very uh, very lovely. I found it really reminiscent of the piano, uh, which is one of my very favorite scores. Uh, the Michael Nyman. Uh, score and uh, I, I think they there were a, a lot of very similar not motifs but similar styles and structures uh, certainly similar orchestration lots of great piano stuff in this score yeah and I know that he had to work pretty fast to score this thing and uh, uh, you know it sometimes when these composers have very little time they end up doing some amazing things yeah. so yeah I, I you know he's just one of those um, one of my favorite modern composers working today and yeah I think he did a beautiful job Awards, Andy. How did it do uh, in award season? Oh, yes. Well, this film definitely um, got a lot of nominations, uh, definitely for the performing performances. Um, a few wins, um, uh, and a number of them were really small wins. Uh, of the bigger wins, uh, Alicia did win supporting uh, a award for uh, the SAG Awards. Um, and uh, as far as the Oscars go, it was nominated for four. Um, best actor, Eddie Redmayne. He lost to Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant. Uh, best uh, costume design, Paco Delgado lost to Jenny Beaven uh, for Mad Max Fury Road. Best uh, production design, Eve Stewart and Michael Standish lost to Colin Gibson and Lisa Thompson, also for Mad Max Fury Road. And then, of course, uh, Alicia Vikander, who did win an Oscar for Best uh, Actress uh, in a Supporting Role. Um, and, and so there's a few interesting little things here. First, I'm just going to jump back to Eddie Redmayne real fast. Cause I think this is funny. He was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in this film. He was also nominated for a Razzie for, for worst supporting actor for Jupiter ascending. And he, <laughs> he, he won the Razzie that weekend and he lost the Oscar. Which is, oh no. Which is really funny. So, so that's that one. Um, but yeah, going back to Alicia and her Oscar win, this is, this is these weird things about the politics of Oscars. And I don't, I just don't know if there's any rules about it, but what happened was the, the production company or the distributor, sorry, Focus Features, they knew that there was this little movie out there called Room that Brie Larson was amazing in it. And they were concerned that if they pushed Alicia as best actress opposite Brie, that she would lose because, um, again, everybody knew Brie was amazing in that film. We've talked about it. She was. Um, sure. And uh, so they pushed her as best supporting actress in in uh, in this film. A lot of people see that as a category fraud because she has almost a full hour of screen time, almost 50% of the movie's length. She is in the film and they say that qualifies her for a best actress Oscar. And uh, I don't know what the other supporting actresses said, but Alicia refused to comment on the debate. She won her Oscar 
And, you know, it's just, I, I don't know if the Oscar, uh, if the Academy actually has policies for thing like, things like this. But clearly, it wasn't something that bothered them. And they, they, you know, she got away with it. And they pushed her as supporting actress across the board. And so anytime she was nominated, she, or won, it was always as supporting actress. It's weird. And I was wondering this as I was watching the film. I'm like, this doesn't seem like a supporting role. She's constantly in it. She's like the character we're following. So... Ah, weird. What they they should have actually been pushing Eddie as best best actress. That would have been real, <laughs> really brave. That's real courage. That would have been awesome. <laughs> how did how did it do? <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. That's right. How did how did it do at the uh, box office? Oh, uh, the movie cost fifteen million dollars to make, which uh, you know it was only a few years ago. It's only fifteen point three million in today's dollars. It had a limited Thanksgiving release on uh, October. <laughs> when is Thanksgiving? <laughs> limited <laughs> Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving release in October, November twenty seventh, uh, two thousand fifteen. Opposite Creed, The Good Dinosaur, and Victor Frankenstein. Before it had a wider release, January twenty second. 2016. It went on to make 11.3 million domestically and 53.9 million overseas, giving it an adjusted gross of 65 million. This gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $425,000, which is pretty good. When looking at the profit per cost of our series, though, this one ended up the least profitable for its investors, making only four times its budget, whereas Priscilla made nearly 12 times its budget and Transamerica made 16.5 times its budget. Still, it's nice to see these films all found an audience. That is uh, really gratifying in a, a courageous uh, theme uh, of, of filmmaking. We, I, I, I have to tell you, I really enjoyed, I think I can say, I really enjoyed all of these films. Um, and certainly um, deeply grateful that we watched Transamerica. Uh, I, I thought that was a, a wonderful um, addition uh, to certainly to my own catalog. Any closing thoughts on on our transgender series here? I, I really enjoyed all of the films. Also, I mean, Priscilla is just such a, a just a fun film to watch. I've always loved that one, uh, and it was great seeing Transamerica again, just for the performances. This one again, I I really enjoyed uh, to watch the performances. I don't know if I'll watch this one again. Um, I, I found the story, it had some issues, it wasn't completely as, as engrossing. It just, you know, it felt like a biopic, even if it's kind of a false biopic. It's an alternative fact biopic, that's what this is. And to that end, <laughs> to that end, you know, it was it was entertaining enough. <laughs> oh, Andy, how timely. <laughs> Your politics have oozed into our show. That's what I'm here for. Alternative facts are for everybody, Pete. <laughs> they sure are. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, well, I, uh, you know what this, I, I feel like one of the things that I have taken away from this series is that there are a lot of other great transgender stories out there that, uh, that I would love to talk about with you, and I think we should revisit this at some point. Uh, keep the the series alive because I I think there are some some other great stories we need to add to the list. Yeah, definitely, lots of good stuff. All right, well let's do it. Let's uh, let's it's time to rank it. Let's do it. Head on over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can swipe up in your podcast player of choice there, and I put all the links that you need right there. Just tap on the flickchart link, and that'll take you straight to this movie, so you can add it to your catalog, your list on flickchart.com. Uh, here we go. Uh, Danish girl, who's she up against? First, she's up against Mad Max, 1979. I'm going with Mad Max. Yeah, Mad Max is going to take her. The Danish girl or the host? I'm curious to what you will say, <laughs> given your equal conflict. You know how I feel about the host. But I would probably I watch the host first. I mean, this has some great performances. It's really interesting, but I would still pick the host. I would absolutely watch the host first. The Danish girl or say anything. I would do say anything. Yeah, probably say anything. It's a conflicted say anything, though. I mean, eh, well, we had more issues know. with it, but still. Boombox, okay, all yeah. that. Boombox, I know. The Danish girl or Marty. Everybody's <laughs> God, favorite. The Danish girl. <laughs> Please. The Danish girl twice. I might do Marty, actually. 
Really? You might? I might. That was a might. I, I, I would watch The Danish Girl twice, and all right. you might watch Marty. I'll, I'll give you The Danish Girl then. All right. Danish Girl or Christmas in Connecticut. Wow, that hasn't popped up in a while. I really enjoyed wow. that one. I'm going to say Christmas in Connecticut. I would, watch, I would watch Christmas in Connecticut. The Danish Girl or Manhunt. Fritz Lang. I would go with Manhunt. I would so, go with Manhunt. Despite some of the goofiness of it. I know. <laughs> oh, this is an interesting one. The Danish Girl or Outbreak. Boy, did I have issues with that one this time. That was so... I would say the Danish Girl. <laughs> helicopter. Oh, my God. It was so stupid. <laughs> I would also say... Uh, I would also say the Danish Girl. The Danish Girl or the Andromeda Strain. More more uh, virus Wow. Movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I would watch. Uh, I would watch the Danish Girl. So would I. All right. Well, there we are. Two sixty six. Wow. Way down That's there. That's a pummeling. Yes, it is. Yes, it I, is. When I watch this, I did not expect that. I really. I. I wow. Uh, well, we've talked about a lot of good movies. <laughs> yeah. No. That's what we kind of hang our hat on at this point. But two sixty six. You know, I think it's just that. It, it's an interesting film. There's really great performances, but it's, I don't know, the film, uh, you know, it, it doesn't hold up very well. And it certainly, for me, isn't something that I have much interest in watching again. So I think that's why it ended up falling down and, and uh, losing on some of those uh, rankings. Well, I had to watch this one alone, and uh, and I know that my family is very interested in watching it and so we're going to be having a a talk about it and then i think watching it again in short order i think we'll probably take it on in the next couple of weeks and so i'm really curious how it'll stand up watching it in such close proximity and if my if it'll impact my overall thinking about it so um i'm i am sad that it's in the place that it is just because i i think eddie redmayne did such a fantastic job playing the role uh, and um it's just that it couldn't overcome the weight of its own pacing. We'll call this the Jupiter Ascending ranking. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what okay. he gets. <laughs> All right. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Where do we go from here? We are going to be uh, uh, totally shifting gears, and we're going to uh, jump into a director's series with director Zhang Yimou, which should be a fun little series. I'm really curious to see how this series uh, shakes up, because Zhang Yimou has directed some really fantastic films, um, both over in uh, China, also in uh, now he's having kind of his, uh, I guess it's kind of an English, it's not quite an English debut, actually. I was going to say that, but he did another film, and I'm blanking on the name of it. But um, The Wall, The Great Wall, <laughs> I'm really curious to see how the shift in his career has has brought him to that particular film. Um, we're actually kicking the film off with Judo, which he did in 1990, and then Raise the Red Lantern in 1991. Then we're going to jump all the way to 2003 and look at Hero before ending with The Great Wall. And so it's going to be an interesting look at his career over kind of a, a several decades. And uh, I, <laughs> I'm just, I, I, I want to think that there's going to be something really magical about The Great Wall, and it's not going to be something that's completely <laughs> laughable. <laughs> It might be completely laughable, but you know, who knows? Uh, it, it was a it was a very expensive film. It might be something that's I, I don't know. It could be a big flop. It could be a big money maker. Who knows what's going to happen with that crazy thing? Well, you've certainly covered your bases. <laughs> that was my goal. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, well, I'm I'm actually excited about it. Uh, in that I'm I'm trying to really temper my expectations. I'm really excited about the first uh, set of films in here because they are films that uh, uh, I'm very interested in watching back to back, right together. Uh, assuming we can get them. Uh, yeah, I think uh, judo. There, there is a caveat around judo. We're having a little bit of trouble getting our hands on judo, so we may not actually hit that one right away. Um, right, yeah, it's a that's one that's not available unless you uh, check it out from your library anymore. So, <laughs> and our, our libraries trying. are notoriously <laughs> slow. <laughs> Anyhow, oh, uh, this has been uh, has been good, Andy. I'm I can't wait to get get that. It's it's actually leading up to my China trip. Like, yeah, this right. is the last series we talk about before I am uh, in China. So th- I'm considering this homework. The Great hey. Wall is. <laughs> It's uh, right. homework for my China trip. <laughs> I like I'm it. I'm going to like wear it. my armor 
take my bow. You can ask. Right. The, you, you'll be so informed when you ask questions about what's beyond. The, what, what, why did you build this wall? Oh, I know that already. Let me tell. tell let me tell you about the dragons. <laughs> oh God, I gotta go to bed. All right, I've got some barren landscapes. I've got to go paint. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you go first? Well, I've you got a one. Go I've got a one star by Fred Tarburton, uh, who just just uh, about a year ago watched this. He says, "Not my kind of movie." Wife and daughter wanted to see it, so I endured. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Thank you for enduring. Oh. <laughs> I wonder actually if Fred Tar. If it's actually Fred Tar Burton, because I've got Nancy Burton, and I'll bet that's the wife. You think? Uh, and she's talking about Fred Tar. That's what I'm imagining in my head. That's brilliant. Uh, because Nancy says this movie is not for a broad range of audiences. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't that the truth, Nancy? Oh, dear. Uh, I guess I'm just too old fashioned. She says, but watching a wife encouraging her husband to cross-dress and full frontal shots of Eddie Redmayne's junk is not my idea of a good movie. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> to be fair, it's not the whole junk. It's not a full Andy, as they say. The full Andy. <laughs> Never get tired of oh, that. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. All right, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season six, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. No, oh, hold on. Hold on. No, it's my turn. Ah, damn. First up, disease films. Uh, okay. Uh, well, there's The Omega Man and The Andromeda Strain. Um, oh, and Blindness. One more. One more. Um, oh, Children of Men? That's the one. Okay, how about It's Real Life, Jack? Oh, that's easy. Black Hawk Down, Seabiscuit. Betty Davis. Uh, uh, the Little Foxes. Um, whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Now Voyager. Okay, this one's easy. The Godfather Trilogy. <laughs> well, The Godfather. Oh, so good. Well, we've covered lots of great movies that started out as books. Books like The Danish Girl, Certain Women, Howl's Moving Castle, or The Black Stallion. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.